The Mitchell's Front Page Podcast is brought to you by Geelong Bank. Listen live on 94.7 The Pulse, Mondays and Tuesdays from 9 till 11. Now on the line, we have former Western Victoria MP Simon Ramsey. Plenty to talk about in politics today. Simon, good morning. Thanks for being on the program. Yeah, good morning, Mitchell, and good morning to your listeners. We have to give a shout-out to Andy Richards, who I bumped in on the weekend, former councillor and former Labor candidate for South Bowen, and he said he'd be listening in. So, hello, Andy. Uh, well, uh, good morning to you too, Andy, and um, look forward to uh, hearing and seeing what your political ambitions might be in the future. I think he's had a crack at state and local, perhaps federal next I don't know what that means, but <laughs> moving right along. Um, look, there'd be one issue that I'm sure everyone is listening to the radio right now to hear what your thoughts are, and that would be Tim Smith. And I saw your name popping up in a few news articles over the weekend. Well, it's sort of a, you know, a time in space where I was hoping to leave behind me and move on, but mm. um, it is hard to distance myself from, um, I guess, the precedent that was set uh, at that time about how... Uh, to deal with uh, my unfortunate episode during that time of Parliament. But, um, look, Mitchell, to be fair, uh, Tim will be in a very dark place at the moment, and I hope his friends are gathering around him to give him support, because I know I certainly was. Um, And uh, he's made the right decision in stepping back from his um, shadow cabinet role. Uh, What happens uh, here on is really uh, up to himself to make a decision whether he wants to continue in political life and or uh, the president of the Liberal Party and administrative committee and or the pre-selectors because um, pre-selection uh, for lower house seats are coming up uh, fairly soon before the year and perhaps early next year. So um, I guess it'll be up to those different parties to decide uh, Tim's future. And I seem to remember, and you probably don't want to remember this too much, but I think you're on the front page of the advertiser. Was it for three days running at the time here in Geelong? And uh, I looked at the Herald Sun today. Tim wasn't on the uh, front page. It was Bert Newton. He was on page two. But it must be just a very dark time when it seems like everyone is out to get you. Well, it is, but I suspect I was on a hiding to nothing. I was being... um uh, chased by the right faction uh, after my blood for supporting the Voluntary Assisted Dying Bill through 2017. And I got a lot of calls from uh, right faction Liberal Party members uh, seeking for me to resign and be disendorsed and et cetera, et cetera, for that, uh, for that support of that bill, which I'm very proud of, I might add. Uh, I was also uh, in a family law dispute with a very close and personal friend of Michael Kroger, who was present at the time, and I was getting a fair bit of pressure from him to um, to uh, take a preferred option uh, offered by him. And obviously it was an election year and, of course, uh, Matthew Guy had a very strong law and order um, policy program running through that campaign and no doubt uh, Matthew felt somewhat pressured himself to, um, I guess, uh, find more easily to dispense with an upper house member than otherwise would be the case. And uh, just when I say I'm sympathetic to Tim Smith and that he'd be in a dark place, I'm not condoning drink driving at all. And I, of course, stand by him getting everything that he deserves in the law and maybe even having to resign from the parliament. But I think you can be sympathetic and also, uh, you know, uh, not supporting drink driving at the same time. But what do you think we need to do to, to stamp out drink driving? I mean, we were talking to the TAC last week about this idea of passive alcohol censors in 
cars that would just immobilize the vehicle if it detects too much alcohol? Is that the way to go? Because it seems to me that with some people, they have a few drinks and think, no, I'll be fine to drive. It's only a short distance up the road. And then this is what happens. Well, certainly in my my personal experience, um, and I have to say, Mitchell, I have never, ever um, had a drink, an uh, alcoholic drink and driven since. And it's certainly a big wake-up call for those who are unfortunate enough to go through the uh, legal process. Um, and I've also offered myself to TAC. I, I rang the minister within two weeks and also the CEO of um, TAC to see if I can do anything to assist, whether it's share my personal experience or uh, some of the loss, the uh, you know the, the physical loss, the financial loss, the family uh, reputations. All there's a lot of things that happen uh, once you're caught drink driving. Uh, not to mention, obviously, um, your sort of reputation status and this sort of um, uh, sort of you, you're sort of carrying it for life. I've been carrying this for life. Uh, every day I wake up uh, regretting uh, the decisions I made on that day back in 2018 and, and it will never leave me. Mm. Um, so um, I'm, I've been more than happy to share my experiences uh, through that process and I've certainly owned up uh, to the fact of my behaviour on that day at every opportunity. And you're right, the press went feral uh, and it wasn't just Metro Press, it was um, because I was a a regional MP, of course, there's hundreds and hundreds of little newspapers right across the state that sort of ran it continuously for weeks on end and it had a significant impact to me personally but also to my family. So there is a stigma attached to um, being caught drink driving but when you're in the public eye, it's tenfold and Tim will have to go through the court process um, and uh, I don't know if there'll be a conviction or not but nevertheless... Um, you know, you, 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 it doesn't stop just by being apprehended for drink driving. It lives with you forever and, and it's certainly living with me every single day. So on to some other issues and the pandemic legislation is a big one because if you were in the upper house, you'd be probably voting on this at some point very soon. And uh, I don't know if you heard Andy Medic on the program this morning talking about it, but just amazing how you can have people and two different people have completely different conclusions about the legislation because from what he was saying this morning he thinks this legislation actually offers more checks and balances than the current state of emergency provisions well i think it's a bit delusional because um as as far as i can understand it's quite a confusing bill and certainly the media reporting has been confusing and certainly the debates in the lower house haven't helped um joe blogs voter to understand what's going on but my understanding was there's general agreement across all parties that we needed to move responsibility of declarations for emergencies, uh, particularly health emergencies, to uh, to the government and not the bureaucrats. And I think Matthew Guy uh, was reported as, as supporting that. The total is with the government, typically they've overreached uh, on the um, need to have more powers in respect to the role the Premier and the Minister for Health will play in respect to... Um, this public health and wellbeing amendment bill that that will give them powers, whether the pandemic's in Victoria or not, to force lockdowns and significant fines and penalties to those that don't um, uh, don't uh, you know behave through the um, through the uh, lockdown rules. Uh, and it is true, New South Wales have moved similarly to moving the powers away from bureaucrats to. Uh, the elected representatives, but um, they still work under a public health order, whereas I understand this legislation does not. 
and also in New Zealand, uh, where their shift from bureaucrats to politicians taking responsibility for declarations is actually only through the time of a pandemic. But these um, these uh, powers that the government is seeking through this legislation is a, sort of a rotational uh, three months where um, the Premier and the, and the Minister for Health will have, uh, you know, specific powers to force lockdowns, uh, force declarations of emergencies and be able to apply significant fines and penalties that, for those that don't obey, but also have very little oversight. This oversight committee is a bit of a sham and I agree with uh, the opposition uh, that it needs to be uh, far more independent than government appointees. And I think this is where the crossbench really need to work over um, the next couple of weeks and make uh, significant amendments if the opposition can't to make sure the oversight, transparency and accountability of these powers is shown uh, to all and sundry. That is, it's made public and there's public examinations uh, of um, the way these powers are being used. But the penalty is totally overreached, um, Mitchell. Mm. Do you think these oversight committees can be problematic in that they're a way for politicians to sort of pass the buck about tough decisions because they could just say in the future, well, the oversight committee said it was fine, but of course no one voted for the oversight committee and who knows exactly what methodology was used to appoint them? Yeah, well, they're government, government appointees. I mean, there's, uh, I suspect there's probably not a lot of teeth in the oversight committees and they'll just uh, kowtow to... Uh, the government of the day, uh, I'd certainly like to see a lot more independence. I mean, I have to say, and I give my give credit to the Ombudsman, Deborah Glass, who's done a, a really good job uh, through um, her office to hold the government to account on a whole lot of misdemeanours um, that required more scrutiny and wouldn't have got it otherwise for her um, because a lot of the self-appointed committees that are charged with transparency and accountability like PAYAC and others really haven't been able to because they're, um, they're basically got majority of uh, government appointees on the board. Now, um, today there's international flights coming back for the first time where people don't have to quarantine. I think the first flight from Singapore was meant to land at about 10 a.m., so who knows, it could be back on the ground. You've got that coupled with a lot of people coming down the coast uh, because it's the first time that they're allowed to. I just found it amazing how quickly you can go from being in the depths of a dark lockdown to suddenly having international flights return. It's, I think, a bit hard for people to process all of that happening all at once. Well, that's true, um, but it wasn't enlightening to see the scenes uh, this morning of families getting together. I, I noticed a couple of flights coming into Sydney, and I think there was a flight coming into Melbourne. It was just, um, it sort of made life almost normal again to see families getting together. I mean, I suppose me being in a regional area, I've never really appreciated the restrictions that have been placed on our um, urban cities and particularly Melbourne. I have a son that's been locked down in Melbourne for three quarters of the year as well. I'm looking forward to seeing him next weekend uh, with his new wife and uh, about a baby about to come as well. So I just think, and of course with the spring weather coming on board and people getting outside and restrictions being removed, it is um, really pleasing from a mental point of view to see things slowly turning to a normality and we're able to get families back together again uh, pre-Christmas.
It's been interesting talking to people from Metro Melbourne and uh, understandably they're not in the least bit sympathetic to us, but I was saying to them, you know, it hasn't been all easy here. I mean, we've had some lockdowns also have been restricted from travelling to Metro Melbourne, but yeah, they've said, well, you've had it just so easy, a walk in the park compared to everything that we've been through and, you know, fair enough, you won't get an argument from me about that. No, and look, there's so many things happening at the moment uh, as well, of course. Um, and I know you mentioned the sad passing of Bert Newton. I, I lived with Bert Newton, as many others did through his early years. Graham Kennedy's show, Don Lane's show, um, the Logies, always synonymous with uh, Bert Newton and, of course, um, his stint at Channel 10. And he, he was an artistic performer, wasn't he? He was an entertainer. Uh, he could ad-lib, uh, he could save certain situations that other people just would not be able to manage. And um, from all accounts, and I've never met him, but uh, he was a really nice person off screen, a uh, very charismatic, caring person. And we sort of saw that through his life. And I watched the um, the Channel 9 um, uh, film last night of, you know, his previous works and his, basically the life and times of Bert Newton. And it's really sad that we've um, seen the passing of one of the true entertainers of the television world you won't, you won't believe what I ended up watching because um, I looked on YouTube for a few Burt Newton clips and ended up watching an interview he was conducting with John Howard on the GMA program just before the 2001 election. And I'm just always fascinated to watch political interviews and how things change over time. But I suppose the more things change, the more things stay the same in terms of the way that uh, election campaigns have focus issues and talking points and uh, the way things go back to them. It's uh, something that really interests me but probably a lot of people wouldn't remember Bert for his political interviewing skills. No, and he was a great interviewer and he drew people out saying things that they would not normally say and there's a few others doing that. But isn't that a nice change? I'm sort of reflecting on, uh, you know, yesterday we had the, the President of France calling our Prime Minister a liar. Mm. We had the issues around climate change policy and whether it was a plan or a pamphlet um, and, and a whole lot of other more serious matters. But... You can understand why, like the hey, hey revisits we had a couple of weeks ago where the ratings went through the roof. People just want to escape the humdrum of politics and um, some of the more serious issues like the pandemic, obviously, and get into a bit of a fantasy world of fun. Um, and, and we haven't used that fun word for a long, long time. And my um, hope is that, uh, you know, with with families getting together and summer coming up and holidays that people will return to that fun and uh, normality that we, you know, we love dearly. We're, we're Australians, we're outdoor people, we're barbecues, uh, have a good time, look after your mates sort of thing. Um, and all that's been missing over the last two years. Now, in terms of the submarines that you mentioned, what do you make of how it's all playing out on the international stage with Australia and France? And the opposition is perhaps rightly so condemning the federal government about their handling of the way that that submarine deal was scrapped. Well, I think I mentioned to you some uh, weeks ago when we talked about this that it's not so much, and I don't have an issue so much with um, uh, reviewing the contract and nulling the contract if... um, you know, certain stages haven't been delivered. My understanding was it was a bit of a dog of a contract anyway and about $40 billion over the original budget. So I understand the government wanting to, particularly with threats from China uh, and boosting up our defence capabilities to re-look at um, whether we, we did actually need those type of submarines or move to nuclear. But it was the way it was done and 
I think Joe Biden, the president of the USA, said it was clumsy and uh, the president's now called our prime minister a liar. You'd have to think that um, Scott Morrison, you know, just six months out from election would love to be somewhere else because he's getting a hiding on the climate change policy and now obviously the submarine issue is sucking the oxygen out of um, any goodwill that he was going to impart to uh, those significant trading partners in uh, G20 and, and, the, and the Glasgow meet. So, uh, you know, my hope is that um, things certainly improve on an international basis because uh, we are a trading nation. You know, 80% of our exports are traded internationally. We rely on our trading partners uh, with uh, honesty, integrity and goodwill. And um, I'm not sure I'm seeing a lot of that at the moment overseas. Can you see the Labor attack ads at next year's federal election calling the Prime Minister a liar? I mean, it's pretty compelling stuff. Well, I think uh, Mark Riley actually said this morning he's never heard uh, a uh, Prime Minister or Premier of one nation calling another Prime Minister or Premier of another nation a liar. Not very diplomatic language. Way. In such a public way on national, international TV, it was extraordinary. And uh, I felt very sorry for our Prime Minister to be caught uh, having to respond to that and now um, rebutting it. And no doubt that will be the sort of news of the day um, in respect to some of the good work that no doubt is going on in relation to putting our case for uh, reducing our net zero emissions uh, by 2050. Now, we'll be digging into this issue a bit more on the program tomorrow, but um, what are you making of the machinations and discussions overseas as uh, these international stum- summits start to heat up? Well, I mean, we have to be there. I think uh, we need to be a, a partner in those discussions and we have a lot to give. And in relation to climate change policy, uh, as you know, I have a strong farming background and we're, we're going to play a significant role in reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. You see one of the, the key planks of the plan is about uh, soil sequestration, but also part of that plan should be about reforestation, uh, using our native grasses, our forests, um, plantation farming. I mean, we have a lot to give for those that are custodians of the land to reduce our greenhouse emissions um, for our country and also in relation to methane produced from animals. We have a lot to give in relation to how we reduce those emissions also through uh, better practices and new technologies. So, you know, I think we can be a leader in this field uh, and it's great to see the National Farmers Federation put their hand up early to say we want to be part of this process um, to do our bit to help uh, our greenhouse gas emissions and our global warming targets, uh, both at a domestic level and also an international level. How much do you think the average Australian voter cares about what other nations think of us if we can see the Prime Minister's making these decisions for the best interests of Australia? Does it worry them if, because uh, I saw on uh, one TV show last night that shouldn't have been watching, but was, and uh, the uh, one of the former Irish politicians was on there saying how terrible Scott Morrison was and should have done more and had better policies. Um, just wondering, to, to, does the average voter in Australia actually care about that situation? Well, I think they do. I think um, they like to see how we are measured uh, internationally and also the performance of our Prime Minister. I mean, the Prime Minister's come under heavy scrutiny uh, of late um, about how he's managing... Um, the country on behalf of Australians, uh, whether it's the pandemic or climate change policy or uh, corruption and integrity commissions. Um, my understanding from a number of polls that have been carried out recently that, you know, some of these are key issues for voters. Um, 
Uh, we're seeing some of the murky sides of politics at the moment. They want to have uh, an anti-corruption body, a federal anti-corruption body that can deal with uh, some of these matters uh, that have risen um, both within the political ranks but also the industry ranks. Um, and they also they want to see some substance in climate change policy. Um, the 2030 was a, a given, almost given. We've met the target and surpassed it. We haven't really capitalised on it. Uh, and also uh, a bit more substance in the 2050 net zero reductions. But I can understand the position he's taken. It's basically uh, a sort of a, uh, you know, net um, uh, liability, in well, a net liability to the voters leading up to an election because it's not going to cost them anything. Mm. Uh, we're hearing it's costing about $20 billion up to 2030 in, in research and development, but they're basically spending that money anyway. There's no new taxes uh, and a lot of the technology they're talking about is already in place and industry is taking that forward. So there's no net loss, I don't think, to their climate change policy in respect to cost uh, to the voter or cost to, uh, you know, the election process. But in terms of the international stage, um, I know some countries are saying you should only have 14 grams of meat per day. And I know for some people, they'd uh, overdo that 14 grams well and truly easily, probably in the first meal of the day. Um, so it's things like that, you know, if the uh, international community is saying you have to restrict your meat intake to an average of 14 grams a day, but the average person wants to have more than that, do we care in a way what the international community says or do we say no because they said that we have to reduce our meat production and meat consumption well some people might care but i think people might care more that we don't like being told uh what to eat by some of our international activists um uh my view is look a, a measured diet there's plenty of farm dietitians out there that'll tell you uh, a good balanced diet of vegetables and meat um is is good for good for you um you know interchange with chicken meat or uh, beef meat or fish or um it's just about balance uh coupled with good exercise uh both for physical and mental health i mean you've got to combine a number of factors for a, a good quality of life and a good diet uh eating less meat and being told by animal activists we need to eat less meat uh to my mind would be um uh quite obnoxious to uh the general voter few more issues to talk about, and one of them is the state electoral boundaries, which feeds in nicely to the discussion you just mentioned about pre-selections. But uh, did you see anything of interest in the electoral boundaries? I think the big thing for me is down this way, Torquay is no longer in the electorate of South Bowen, so Darren Cheeseman won't be representing them if he's successful after the next election. So South Bowen essentially becomes kind of like an Armstrong Creek type seat. Yeah, well, and I think... Um, uh, I must say, you know, closer to home for me is the Polworth seat where now it's taking in a fair bit of Torquay, which um, traditionally has not been Liberal heartland. And um, the current member, Richard Reardon, will, will you know, face some challenges uh, in um, holding his margin uh, given the redistribution. And again, um, you know, the Geelong, South Bowen, boundaries change a bit in relation to Belmont and Heighton. Um, but I'm not sure Darren Cheechman should rest on his laurels because, um, you know, he's uh, taken in a bit more um, Armstrong Creek. I think um, he hasn't been, I don't think he's been overly active. I've not seen him do anything. Um, and uh, I'm sure the voters um, uh, will, will punish him given um, his sort of uh, lack of um, lack of work ethic in, the, in that electorate. So, 
Uh, it will be interesting, but again, I think, you know, it'll be hard for us. Rip and, rip and changes a bit. Uh, and uh, some of their boundaries, taking more of Ballarat and Lucas, mm-hmm. um, more, uh, you know, heavy populated areas, which traditionally have been uh, Labor strongholds. So it'll be interesting. Um, and given, uh, you know, endorsements and pre-selections for those lower house seats are coming up shortly, it'll be interesting to see who puts their hand up. Well, it certainly will be, particularly with, you know, key seats like South Balwyn. I mean, I suppose it uh, is going to be in play. Maybe Ballerine might be in play. It's hard to say. Uh, depends on how things go over the next year or so. But uh, it'll be fascinating to see who gets pre-selected for those seats. It will. And, of course, we've got the Senate pre-selections coming up uh, this next month. So uh, I'll be interested to see how uh, Liberal Party positions uh, their one and third spot on that Senate ticket which, um, as you know, with the resignation uh, of Scott Ryan, leaves that open. Mm. Um, and uh, I know there's a couple of Liberal candidates uh, showing some interest in those positions. And obviously, there's some uh, jockeying going on uh, with some of our federal leaders in supporting certain candidates. So um, it'll be interesting to see how that runs out, because I know there's a bit of a backlash when the Treasurer and the Prime Minister... Um, uh, sort of put their positions forward in relation to who they would support in the previous rounds. And I think they got a bit of a smack from the Liberal Party uh, members that they wanted the choice not to be dictated to by our federal uh, MPs. So be interesting to see how that runs out. And just finally, uh, before we let you go, we've got uh, Councillor Eddie Contell coming on tomorrow to fill in the mayor's spot on the program. Lots to talk about in council politics, but um, I see this council debt issue has uh, raised some discussions. Or the fact that there's a budget deficit, um, which I suppose is not surprising after a pandemic, is it? Or should they be expected to still turn a surplus? Well, I don't think it's that surprising, uh, except their rates seem to... um um, be increasing if, if my road notice is any indication of, um, of uh, across the board. But look, I think um, Steph Asher as mayor and um, her council have done a good job in providing a sustainability framework for uh, the council. I think, you know, there's a lot of effort gone into that. Um, $10 million uh, current yearly deficit is a lot of money uh, and they'll need to start pruning back uh, given their current debt. Um, and obviously with the loss of um, car park revenue and other things during the year hasn't helped. But, um, you know, I, I see things, though, Mitchell, and I'm sure your listeners do. I've got a footpath running past my house that's been under construction for eight months um, and still not completed, uh, outsourced by contractors. If that's if that's the norm of um, work workload and work productivity, I'd hate to think what other projects around the council um are going in respect to uh, meeting timeframes and meeting budget. I suspect that's probably where half the problem is. Was there a footpath there before, as in they were repairing it, or was it a brand new footpath? No, it's it's part of that new um, footpath, bike path uh, strategy they've got trying to link the different suburbs, sort of running from, well, in my case, down near the Barwon River and Deer Park and up Scenic Road and it's Province Road and sort of then runs out past the, the water basins, Barwon Water, Barwon Water Land, uh, which they've leased back to council to have these footpaths. But this, these constructions have been going on forever. And um, uh, you might ask Eddie tomorrow, well, what's the hold-up? Why, why is all this taking so long? You know, six or seven blokes running around in red shirts every day with uh, bits and pieces of machinery, then they disappear for two months and they come back and put up a post and rail and disappear again for two months. I just 
doesn't seem to be any continuity of the work mm. uh, at the moment around that project and other projects around the council that I could talk to you at another time. Well, we might just do that. Look, thanks for being on the program. Another marathon session today. And uh, to the people uh, listening that make all the decisions about this building, we'd love to have studio guests back at some stage. And I'm sure you'd be top of the list for that. Thanks very much, Mitchell. And all the best for everyone out there. Good on you. Thank you very much, former Western Victoria MP Simon Ramsey. The Mitchell's Front Page Podcast is brought to you by Geelong Bank. Listen live on 94.7 The Pulse, Mondays and Tuesdays from 9 to 11. Or search for Mitchell's Front Page on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or wherever you get your podcasts.